58% of the world populations are millennials and Gen Z, and most of them are, I don't know, the complexity of tourism. You know, the trend now is if, if our generation's gonna exploit that too. What I've noticed last time I was in Bali, the way the older generation interact with the local people in Bali, it's way different than the younger generation. They are more, they don't even make ever to mingle with the locals, the younger ones, I feel. Hmm. Like older generation also, like, are you talking about retirees? Like people who go there to retire? Like, yeah, maybe like around my mom, dad's age, like early 50s. No, 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 early 60s. Yeah, I was going to say, wait, your parents are in their (laughs) early 50s. (laughs) <laughs> they're so young um so i also so there i think that there is um there is like the travel that you do where you kind of like um visit a place whether it's one month or two months or one day or whatever um and then there's also people like finding new homes right and like settling down I've been to like several several um cities here in Mexico where um these cities become places that people end up settling down in um like Oaxaca and Merida where you do see a lot of uh expats immigrants whatever you want to call them um and they do live here long term you know like they they find an apartment they find a house and they settle here long term and then they kind of integrate into the community and it's interesting because like for instance in Oaxaca like some of them were actually like several of them were talking about how like it takes a long time for them to like actually be accepted, like truly be accepted in the community, um, like more than 10 years. And then in Merida, it's like, it's like faster for, for the community to accept them. So um, <laughs> everything is interesting. I mean, and, it, I um, think it's also the way you carry yourself. It's like you can connect with people just for one day. But you will have like a very interesting like conversation or like intense connection if you just like being open. Because I feel like a lot of people that travel like come to Indonesia or whatever from like a more more privileged countries like like U.S. and then Europe. Sometimes they they have this aura. I don't know because I feel like it's like an aura that you know like. I come from a more uh, like a modern civilization coming to a poorer country that without it, without them saying it, it's just like you can feel their energy. You know what? You know what I mean? And you don't even want to like, yeah, you don't even want to talk to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those people need to fuck off. Louis was like complaining because we stayed in a for like two weeks or something, right? And he was like, why is it all the women here who come for the yoga class? They're, they were like talking like, oh, I came from like a traumatic relationship and this <laughs> yoga class, yeah. this yoga class tra- like transcend me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, it's kind of like so, like because yeah, it's similar. There are places in Colombia, there are places in Mexico that are like like so. The city that I was in, Oaxaca, it's like a lot of these people who like they think that they're better because they're like artsy types, and it's like no, you're mm-hmm. the same kind of shithead. But they think, oh, yeah. it's because they're not like. Are you familiar with like Cancun? Um, mm-hmm. So like Cancun is very. U.S. It's it's like Florida or Miami, basically, right? Um, where the tourism is like that kind of like beach parties and things like that. And then Oaxaca is the tourism is supposedly like artsy, and people are like, oh, like I I'm a much better person because like I, I'm an artist or whatever. And I'm like, but the way you carry yourself in this like I don't even know how to explain yeah. it like entitlement. Yeah, I know. It's like the same kind of shit. Yeah. I talked to like a guy. His balloon is, his name is Blue. I call him Blee Blue, which is kind of funny. He's like come from, uh, you know, that in Balinese they have, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's like cast. A cast? Like cast of like families. Oh, oh, yeah. Like the caste system, like in India. Yeah. Yeah. And his family is from like a medicinal uh, healer caste. Mm-hmm. And he he cracked like the funniest joke. He said like, do you know why Ubud uh, is called Ubud? And I was like, I don't know. And then he's like, it's derived from uh, Balinese uh, language from Ubat, which is like Obat medicine in Indonesia, right? Mm. And I was like, ah, oh, interesting. And then, yeah, because uh, before there's a lot of Westerners come to Ubud and they say like they're sick because his family was like from the 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 healer caste. Every morning there were like tons of bullies like coming to the, uh, I don't know, it's not like a temple, but like, you know, in Balinese, they're like a... Ballet. Yes, like a ballet. I, what do you call that ballet in English? Gazebo? I guess. Like open gazebo? I guess. I mean, gazebo then, is Japanese, but uh, closest thing, I guess, in English. Yeah. And then they will, they will be like a lot of, a lot of like Westerns or I don't, I don't know what to call, I don't want to call it bully, but like bullies. Foreigners. Went to, to these places, right? And then they say like they're sick, they want to be healed. That's why they, they, they come to, come to Ubud. And then, <laughs> My grandpa came to them and then he was like, oh, yeah, you're very, very sick. You know that he's telling me this with like a very thick Balinese accent. Like, you're very, very sick. Look at your skin. You're white. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, fuck. (laughs) There are a lot of like, you know, people with sense of humor that, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. The local people are cheerful and hopeful and like, which is we we also talked about in this episode with Fred. Yeah, so we talked to Fred in this episode who also, um, D, uh, what do you call it? Um, D, romanticized the exoticization people have or romanticization of people have in going to certain countries. Um, and we talked about that because I think we always know those kinds of like city people who are like, oh, I'm going to move to like a small town. And then there's the small town people who are like, oh, I'm going to move to the big city. And um, yeah. 
people always have certain ideas of like how things are um, and it's never the case. So, um, but we're glad that we um, are able to talk about traveling responsibly and like finding a new home. Um, Kevin, should we introduce him? Yeah. Frederick Clapp is a Vietnam-based game designer and cat enthusiast originally from Mexico City. He is passionate about interactive narratives and how game systems provide a good model for understanding the systems governing our world. His passion for designing games and interactive narratives took him to Ho Chi Minh City, where he has been living for the last five years. There, he spent his time trying new food and writing about cats he meets in his travels around Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Who are those two cats, by the way? Yeah, I, I have a, I have four cats. Uh, one of them is one of uh, them is outside, so that's why you're not seeing them. So basically, I have a cat called Wingtip. I I got him in the in my previous uh, office's uh, parking lot. Um, I I got to meet him for like two years, like as a stray cat. And uh, one day I was like, you know what? Like uh, we're leaving. Uh, oh, you adopted me, the so. cat. Yeah, they're all adopted. Yeah, they're all adopted. I, I think uh, like there's so many stray animals in Vietnam. Like it's crazy mm. because no one neuters their pets or their animals in general. So yeah. I think it's the kind thing to do is not to purchase them. I don't know if it's the same everywhere else. It's just mm-hmm. I think it's the way that you should yeah. do it here. Uh, but there's also quite interesting stuff about the way that people conceive Western animals and like uh, local animals, uh, which is also quite interesting in oh, terms of value. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. People here, like they will, uh, they will really think that like the the fluffy and fat uh, European, they call them Western cats, are like the ones that you keep as pets, and they're the ones that they treat really nicely and they really baby. Mm. And then you have Vietnamese cats, which are the ones that are kind of skinny and they mostly actually do work. So most people will keep them as like control for rats or this kind of stuff. Mm. So there's like a really strong hierarchy when it comes to animals. Uh, that wow. Very, um, yeah. It's very strong. Yeah, yeah. For me as an animal lover, it's it's difficult. Uh, but yeah, so I have wingtip. Then I have a completely white cat with blue eyes called Risotto. Uh, Risotto. I also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also found him in a box uh, outside of the office. I don't know if someone left him there because they knew that like you I'm the cat. crazy cat person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> maybe they left him there. Uh, so that's him. And then uh, actually, just during the when the second lockdown started uh, during Tet. Um, a friend of mine said, hey, I found two cats because I had just finished fostering two baby kittens and I was like, oh, I miss my cats. Uh, and they found two cats. So it was like, oh, hey, do you want to keep them until you find them at home? And like, that's where they usually get you, right? Like you always go, like, oh yeah, well, we find them at home. <laughs> yeah. It never actually happens. Yeah. Uh, so the other two, the ones that you've seen, I think is um, the one here in the back, this one's Calavera. Ooh. And uh, she's kind of like a tortoiseshell uh, cat, but her face is white. So that's why she's called Calavera, which means skull in Spanish. And then the one with like the black and orange patches, her name is Pandan, like the leaf, because she has black eyes and it's kind of like a panda. But at some point uh, it was thought that like our cats would have a uh, food related names. So mm. Pandan, ah. uh, Pandan kind of stuck. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Something about uh, what you said about the cat hierarchy. My best friend, she has five cats, so two of them are the fluffy one, and then the, the three of them were like the regular cats, like she picked it up out of the street. She said the fluffy cat likes to bully the stray cat. Um, not, not too often, but she's just like, 
noticing that maybe there's a rule between cats. <laughs> maybe they also have their own internal hierarchy. Who knows? Uh, but no, I think what happens usually is like, I don't know what which cats she got first. But cats, they're not fully solitary species, but the way that they interact socially is very much about like delimiting uh, control over territories. So whenever you have the unfortunate luck of having cats that are more territorial, you will find cats that will bully each other for space. I fortunately don't have this much of a problem. I was also like, I did it like in a very slow and methodical kind of way. Because I think in general, when you're a game designer, you end up kind of just doing things in yeah, very like, slow yeah. and methodical ways. Uh, but I think it's like I I first kept them apart and I just kind of let them meet each other like very slowly, like either through a window or through like a door mm. or like by just playing with them like on separate points of my hand and this kind of point. So like the way that they got to introduce to each other were very, it was very um, gradual. So they kind of got used to each other. So they, they grew up together in the same space. So they, they never have any problems. What brought you from Mexico to Vietnam in particular? Uh, well, so basically for me, what happened is that I used to be, uh, I used to actually make educational games in, uh, in Mexico uh, at a small company, it no longer exists, but uh, I used to be there. And then uh, after I left the company, uh, I was looking for other places to go to. And actually, I ended up applying to Gameloft in um in Mexicali, actually, uh, which is in Mexico, so it makes sense. It's, it's close to me. And the answer that I got was actually from a game loft in uh, in Ho Chi Minh City. It was pretty cool. I was like, oh, well, I've never never thought about Vietnam like very seriously until then. Um, but but th they seemed like a cool bunch, and I figured that um, that, uh, that that yeah, well, why not give it a shot? Uh, I made the test, uh, and, and it worked out. And eventually, maybe three or four months later, I was uh, I was already here. Um, it seemed like also to me like very like it seemed that at least in the beginning because ultimately ended up finding out that there's actually quite a bit of similarities between like Vietnamese and Mexican culture at least as a Mexican living here. And what what were your your conceptions about Vietnam before you moved there and after you moved there? It's hard to say. I think Vietnam gives like a lot of uh, encounters feelings to everyone. I think the first thing is like. I don't want to say it in this way, but ultimately I think it's true. There's like, because of Western conceptions about Vietnam and like the fact that like all our, we ever get from Vietnam from like Western media and most of it is like, hey, it's a jungle and there's like partisans everywhere and like that's where the, the Americans uh, lost or whatever. So uh, ultimately, like I, I never imagined that it would be like such like, like it's legitimately like a very modern country in terms of like infrastructure and the way that it functions. Of course, like, still developing but I, I actually always thought it was going to be way more rural than what i ended up uh, discovering once i got here like uh, i thought it was going to be more like like kind of like a small city and this kind of stuff and like more like a mm. yeah a bit like taiwan if that makes sense in, in the sense of like sleepy town type of feeling right so when you decided to move there um you were okay with moving to sort of a, a sleepy town rural area kind of place uh, yeah, in some way, yes, because like, I think to me, like, it seemed like it was fairly different from what I used to have in Mexico City, like Mexico City is bustling all the time and it's very moved and like it's mm -hmm. everything is happening there all at once, as you've probably seen over your past three months in Mexico. Um, ultimately, I do, I do like the city life, but in general, I, I kind of, I think I, as an introvert, I'm mostly like a person that likes like kind of like peaceful, quiet places where I can reflect and, and focus on my mm -hmm. work. So it, it just seemed to make sense at the time. 
And then, of course, I arrived here and I saw that it, it was actually entirely uh, different and <laughs> not at all like that, but, uh, but actually also in a good way. I think um, Vietnam, I find it, it kind of captures your love twice in some way. Oh, how like the first time for like how weird it is and like how how all of a sudden everything like if you think Mexico City like everything is happening all at once like here everything is happening all at once all together like everything is being built all the time everyone is always doing something I think unless it's like in the in, in the night because I, I find that they sleep way earlier than us um, like Vietnamese people are always working and like they're kind of always building things my question about that is um so in Laos, you know, in, in Laos, um, it's, it, it is a communist country. And so they have pretty strict curfews where um, it's like 11 p.m. Um, things shut down, including uh, l- like TV and, and radio and things like that. Mm. And I think that doesn't happen in Vietnam or at least not in Ho Chi Minh. But then there are other other restrictions um, that is different from living in the West, for instance, or even from uh, places like Indonesia. And I was curious about that. And um, I was also curious about when you were saying you see so many similarities between Mexico and Vietnam, what, what were they Okay, so I guess that's a several parts question. Okay, yes. so the first part, uh, I will say, yeah, Vietnam is nominally a communist country as well as Laos, but uh, but I think Vietnam, ever since the Doi Moi reforms, like in '86 or whatever, like it, it's fairly liberalized. I think it's like for sure it's it's a communist country, but I think it's more a communist country in the same way that uh, China is a communist country. Mm-hmm. So I think. Like it seems like they're a fairly open society. Uh, generally, you will find most like you will find most of their like uh, strong state state control around uh, a the way that you can move money uh, in and out of the country. Like they're very strict about the about the the economy, I guess in general, which I guess makes sense for their system, right? Uh, and they don't want like capital to be moving out so fast. So it's kind of hard to move money from Vietnam to anywhere else. They will usually actually ask you for a legitimate reason for why you would want to move money. Uh, of course, you eventually can, but uh, but but it, but it does seem fairly different in this sense. And I think on the other end, um, yeah, for daily life, generally, they don't seem to mind too much. Uh, I know that there's uh, like protests are not legal in Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, ever since the last protest that they did against the um, developments in Phu Quoc. Um, but uh, other than that, it seems like the government doesn't take like a very strong uh, controlling approach over daily life of the citizens. Uh, for sure, I've never seen anything resembling a curfew here. Uh, the closest thing I ever did see to a curfew was during the COVID uh, lockdowns, I guess, uh, which were fairly strict compared to other countries, as I'm told. But then again, our, our death numbers were uh, also significantly lower. So uh, I do understand why it was done. Uh, but but I, for me as a as a foreigner, it was very uh, it was very different to what I'm used to in the way that uh, life kind of works, right? Like uh, for sure here, when the government says, "Hey, we're gonna do this," uh, you, you you basically do that. Like it's not like in Mexico, where like kind of. When like you say very... protests are illegal, is it people don't have freedom of assembly? Because I think in Cuba, it's like people are not entitled to freedom of assembly, right? You're not, or even in Singapore, like there's no freedom to assemble, right? Correct. You cannot, I, I, 
I'm not super versed in Vietnamese law, so I could be saying something that is not entirely true. But from my understanding and from what I've heard of that period, because I was here, uh, the way that it kind of works is that before you kind of needed like some sort of approval in order to do protests or like demonstrations, I guess. And I think now you, you cannot. So I think it's something like this. Um, so, but- so before people apply for like, hey, I want to protest about these things. And I'm like, I app- I, they, they ask for permission and the government allows them the permission to protest. I think it's something like this, but don't fully quote me as fact on this, because again, like I think something that you also need to understand when you're in Vietnam, especially as a foreigner, is that you're not Vietnamese. And a lot of the things in Vietnam are in Vietnamese. So mm. it's it's sometimes a bit hard to really parse anything about how things are unless you're asking someone, right? So people that will tell you this uh, will maybe tell you the things either as they understanding, understand them or as the way that they see them. So please do take that into consideration. But from my understanding, yes, the way that it used to work is that if you wanted to to do like a demonstration for something, uh, basically uh, you had to like submit like a thing like, hey, we want to demonstrate this and then you would be allowed to do it. And now you cannot. So I think basically, I don't think we ever get like really hard crackdowns like we do in the, in, in the West. Uh, mostly because I also think Vietnamese culture is much more... Uh, uh, as being a more collectivist kind of culture, they tend to not be as, uh, I would say, aggressive when it comes to their demands. I think people here are kind of used to having like different ways in which uh, they can actually operate within uh, uh, governmental systems. And I think they, they just accept that actually, like this is just something that they don't do, right? Uh, I think also in their culture, keeping the peace, no matter what, it's actually more important than uh, than uh, than kind of standing out. And I think that's, that's kind of why you don't see like a uh, like really big uh, really big uh, demonstrations as you may see in other uh, countries that end up like in some sort of revolt. I think on the other end, it's also like I think the government here is very controlling in some way, but there are certain guarantees that I think they end up getting that somehow make people believe that uh, in a way it's still uh, an acceptable deal. I think it's something like this. Um, so yeah, during this protests, I think they did uh, stop some people, and I think they. They arrested a couple of people that were like uh, uh, being like very vocal on social media. I think most of the censorship ends up being around that and not so much on what you say uh, in in person. I think there are strikes uh, because there are there there's significant uh, trade union activity within Vietnam, so there there are strikes sometimes. But I think there's the strikes are mostly related to like the workplace and people just like not working and, and getting their demands heard, and less about actually taking to the streets and uh, and protesting and in public. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So my part two of the question, what similarities do you see between Mexico and Vietnam? Um, I think ultimately, okay, so the first thing that I end up noticing that is very close is like, I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but I also think Mexican people are also very hardworking, like probably in a different way. Also in Mexico City, like people wake up really early and everyone is always doing something. And it's like, it's like very, it's like this very, this sense of like very diligent work that I think they also have here. I think this is uh, fairly important within their culture. Second, Vietnam is also like a very family-centric type of culture. Yeah. Like, even if they have like this collective system, like the like the family unit is very important, kind of like, and their traditions and the way that they honor their their ancestors in some way is quite similar to the way that we, uh, that we do it in Mexico. Like, maybe they won't necessarily have a Dia de Muertos, right? But 
every Vietnamese house, for for the most part, they will actually have like a picture of like the grandma or the granddad uh, in the in the house, and they have also their altars, and they they kind of follow like this very. Uh, it's not really like a religious tradition. Of course, it's religion, but it's more like they follow it more like it's like a way to like um, uh, honor their ancestors and the, yeah. and the and the people in their family unit more than it is about like the gods that you see within their altar. So I think that that's quite similar to the way that uh, Mexico works. Also, the way that everyone shares food and the way that like at, at the end of the day, everyone kind of gets together at the table. This is also fairly to me close to the way that Mexicans uh, relate in terms of family life. I I was always surprised. There was uh, this banh mi place. Uh, banh mi is like this. Yeah. I think, of course, you know what banh mi is. Uh, but yeah, it's like this Vietnamese uh, sandwich. Yeah. There used to be like this place near my, near my apartment. And I used to go there every morning for breakfast. Uh, and eventually you get to know the people there. Uh, they had two cats, one called Moon, one called Rabbit. And I used to uh, play with them while they made my, uh, my banh mi. Yeah. And I remember like it was often enough that when I was arriving there at night, after work, um, they would maybe like the, the whole family would be having a dinner at the at the entrance. Three or four times, they actually asked me to sit with them Enjoy. and have dinner with them. Oh, well. Yeah, and I cannot even speak Vietnamese or, or anything like this. And they would still try to kind of like say like random uh, English words and serve me like a uh, rice wine and this kind of stuff. And like in this like very welcoming kind of way. And I think Mexicans have this as well. So I think in this end, it's very close. Also, um, on my first uh, week here, actually, uh, one of the game designers that used to work there actually invited me to his hometown, like just like, hey, uh, I'm going to my hometown next week for New Year's, you should come. Uh-huh. And actually, they invited me to, to their house and, and, and had like the traditional food and like the, and, and see kind of like the way of life in Vinh Lom. Um, so also in this sense of like, uh, I think Vietnamese people are always trying to create um, Kind of like an extended family unit, even with people that are not even uh, their direct family. Yeah. So I think in this sense, it, it feels very close to the way that the Mexican relations type of... Uh, I think a lot of countries in Southeast Asia or a lot of countries outside the, the the main Western countries are very warmed naturally in their culture. Can I say a similar word? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to make a joke. I'm like, the similarity that I experience right now is that when it's raining, the Wi-Fi just goes off in Mexico and in Indonesia. <laughs> and, yeah, I think like... Uh, and, like yeah. and it's raining right now. And that's why my Wi-Fi is like going crazy. And we had a similar thing happen when I was time, in yeah, Indonesia. With another guest. When yeah, it was I actually raining. Found- I find this actually kind of strange about Vietnam. It's like it rains crazy like right now, but most of the time my internet remains pretty stable throughout the, the day. I generally start getting problems with my internet at night when there's a lot of people connected. Mm. But uh, but yeah, I don't know what they're doing here, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's kind of surprisingly uh, it works. Because when you see the, the electrical installations outside, uh, you wouldn't think that it works. Oh, but really? for some reason, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, like I think also like, like it has like a very cyberpunk type of feel, at least mm. in uh, in Saigon, because like, like basically everything is neon. I, I think it, maybe in Indonesia you also have this, but like Southeast Asia love like neon signs everywhere. So like pretty much every place will have neon stuff outside. Yeah. So if you really look at like the electrical uh, poles outside of the houses, like it's kind of like a freaking uh, like web of just like cables going yeah. everywhere. Um, I love and, like you. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's like, yeah. it's really like, um, to me, it's like 
yeah it's like a it's like a web it's kind of like being in a jungle but made of like a uh, plastic and um uh, and uh and like instead of uh vines you have a uh, plastic cables and uh, and wire right so mm -hmm. i think that's really wonderful but yeah it's surprising to me that like somehow it still functions uh i haven't had much in terms of electrical power outages uh maybe once or twice so yeah i'm, I'm really surprised i don't know how they do it but uh their system somehow uh works yeah and i think maybe this is also kind of what i i think it's like fairly special about vietnam is like Everything always seems like it's done in like such a ramshackle kind of way, but somehow it, it somehow it functions. Yeah. Somehow it just works like almost mm -hmm. through faith, and that's that's actually pretty special. Like you would think that it, you would think that it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does work. Yeah. Uh, this is this is something that like my friends and I have talked about because I think a lot of my friends in certain parts of the world romanticize living in places like Vietnam or Laos or Cuba. And of course, like Vietnam and Laos and Cuba are like very different individually, but they they romanticize these places because of the free healthcare and the education and the certain like protections and like like you said, like it's very calm, um, the, the feeling of the, there's no uprisings and things like that. And so for you living in Vietnam, what do you think about the trades that people make to live in places like this, but they don't have other quote unquote civil liberties that we normally take for granted in other places? I will say that and, and I think I will, I, I don't want to sound like devil's advocate here. So just, I will say this part and then I will probably elaborate on it. But I think that for Western culture, I think our conception of civil liberties is very skewed in a way. Like, I think we tend to believe that we're more free than we actually are. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my, uh, that, that will be my first, uh, my first uh, argument about this. And I will then go about the trade-offs and all the stuff because for sure they exist. I don't want to say they don't exist. It's just that I think we believe that the West is more free than it actually is. Like we will say, oh yeah, in the West we can protest and in the West we can nominally uh, uh, say whatever we want and have no uh, have no consequences and this kind of stuff. But I think legitimately when you see that in the West, when people actually start legitimately protesting, you will actually see militarized uh, police go to the areas and like fucking throw uh, tear gas at people and like arrest people and beat people. And, um, and other than that, you also get like the whole component of like um, um, social and economic oppression as well. Mm -hmm. So for sure, I will not say that these countries are free and ours are not free. It's just that I think in general, the way that liberalism has convinced us freedom actually operates is not necessarily as clear cut as, as you may necessarily uh um, conceive at least uh, on the paper because even if it seems that we are on the paper freer doesn't necessarily mean that we're really free anyway that's that's the first part so with that out of the way uh, I do think that uh, that that there is like a very I wouldn't say colonialist because I think like that word has been overused uh, yes. to hell at this point and I think it's not necessarily uh, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the case but I think it's also very sorry about that uh, one of my cats is like throwing uh, <laughs> stuff from the top of the shelf <laughs> anyway cool so uh, I think what happens a lot is that because we can access uh, a higher standard of living here 
Uh, and I think a lot of us take advantage of it, right? Like I think uh, we all say gentrification is bad, but in a way, most foreigners living in, in other countries, especially foreigners that have the luck of being considered expats and not immigrants, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. um, tend to then access like the higher strata of living of that particular country. And therefore we will just think, oh yeah, it's the same and it's all great for everyone and uh, and uh, and it's easy and it's wonderful. And I think this, this already blinds us into the way that uh, maybe local people will be perceiving uh, their current condition. And I think that's why you will say everyone's saying, oh yeah, living in Vietnam or Cuba or whatever, it's wonderful. And it's because we get the best part of it, right? We get like yes. all of the... Basically, we get all of the economic freedom and all the and all the all the possibilities to do whatever we want, and at the same time, as foreigners, we actually don't end up having any of the trade offs, right? Uh, which actually end up affecting uh, the regular population. So, I think that's why it's fairly easy for us to say that like life here is wonderful. Uh, I will say it's up to the people that live here to really decide whether that's worth for them or not, because ultimately we're not. We're, we're here just guests, right? So it's very difficult for us to just say, hey, yeah, they're wrong and they should protest and they do whatever they want. I think ultimately, at least in Vietnam's case, what makes people kind of tolerate this is that I think as long as people get the perception that they're getting richer, and I think in Vietnam it's fairly easy to get this perception because they just came from like an, ap- an apocalyptic war mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s, people will tolerate a lot so I think for uh, like even when I talk to Vietnamese people here, like everyone always has this feeling of like yeah, like for sure maybe we don't have so much freedoms and yeah, like some stuff doesn't really is not really that great, but they do get the feeling that things are improving and they do believe that like at least even with their nominal market reforms, like they will eventually uh, become like a like a modern country. So I think as long as that perception still remains, I think people are able to to put up with a lot of stuff. I think in general, this is this is the fact. I think the problem, and please also feel free to tell me that I'm wrong because I think that's my perspective and, and, and yours can be completely different and also valid, is that I think that what's actually happening currently uh, in Western countries uh, where there's protests and people, um, and people really dissatisfied with the status quo mainly comes with the fact that we have voided that boom period that in Asia they're still kind of going through. I'm not entirely sure if it's the same in uh, Indonesia, of course, because I haven't been, or in Thailand. But basically, they're still in the boom in the boom cycle of capitalism where everything is kind of diversifying and, hey, we have a middle class and it's great and it's wonderful. So I think people p- think that it's like this. When actually, yeah, if you wait like maybe like 10 or 20 years uh, and and actually that growth starts to slow down as uh, business starts to um, consolidate, you will actually start to see more of like the same type of protests and uh, arguments that we're making uh, in the West about um, uh, liberties and distribution, all this stuff, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of the same of like how uh, Marx used to say that basically in order for people to develop class consciousness and, and this kind of feeling, uh, people first need to have certain needs already met. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's my that's my take on it. Mm. Um, it's also interesting. I I have to note, um, Indonesia. I think the way Indonesia operates is extremely capitalistic. I mean, it's it's it it was um, turned into 
a very a, a place that serves the Western capital system. Um, and so I think the way we protest in Indonesia is not very different. And I I wanted to also note that in, in certain places, um, like I'm thinking like Nicaragua or Guatemala, where the way people resist um, the way people protest is is different from from like New York or or whatever. Yeah. And um, the other the other question, I guess, and I I understand I'm asking you, and that you're not Vietnamese, but I wonder. Oh no! Before that, <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to note was um, I was watching. Uh, artist talks from from Western artists like Western Europe or the United States who are invited to present their work in Vietnam. And they said that, number one, they're not allowed to fully talk about their work in Vietnam because mm-hmm. um, if they were to fully honestly talk about their work, uh, it would like go against certain histories that they don't want to revisit. Um, and it would go against certain, you know, like social... Uh, uh, apathy, <laughs> social um, glue that they want to keep. So I do agree, like what you said, like with with foreigners um, having that kind of privilege living in Vietnam. But at the same time, I have also heard non Vietnamese visitors going there and not, and even them like still not being able to like do the work that they want artistically because it's too political or it it digs too deep into like things that they don't want to revisit. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and I think it's completely true. Uh, like, there's a lot of art censorship within the country. Uh, I I think um, either not only through morality, uh, because actually, like, like Vietnam still has, like, some rules about, like, what you can show on screen or what kind of topics you can talk about in public. Completely, completely true. I think uh, it comes with the baggage of uh, living in a... In a uh, nominally communist type of country, so I completely expect that this would be the case. Um, even in in my case, I, I've I've known uh, school teachers that uh, like they're teaching English here, and therefore the books that they teach are in English, right? Like uh, uh, kind of books about like uh, American culture and all this stuff, because that's uh, uh, Vietnam is really interested in like getting their population to have this. Uh, uh, global skills in whatever sense so what they do do often which is crazy and now that you're talking about like the censorship and all the stuff is like they will actually glue certain pages together in the in the history books particularly the ones that talk about like the boat people and uh, the people that left vietnam uh, after the after the war uh so yeah for sure there is like a like a strong component of like keeping a unified um, historical narrative of the country because otherwise it could invite like a lot of uh, questions and dissent. For sure they do this. Um, and like in a very transparent type of way. So I'm not surprised that uh, artists here would find it hard. Even when I went to the World Press Photo uh, collection here in Vietnam, which is super great. It was like in a park and you can see like a lot of pictures. You will find out that all of the artist statements that would go with the pictures are most of the times like very succinct. I wouldn't say removed because of course, they wouldn't remove them, but but the explanation is usually fairly short. Mm. So I think ultimately, yeah, for sure, there is like a strong component of uh, of control in the way that they want uh, certain narratives to be perceived. Yeah, this this is uh, this is a fact. It's true. Yeah, and I think that what you said about the meaning of liberalism or freedom, it's really true. Like it's it depends on how you see it, and all of us see it in a different way, and 
I don't know. I'm seeing it from from a perspective that sometimes Western people make uh, comments about what living like in let's say Indonesia from their perspective of what freedom is without having the experience or or like the experience of living here and like seeing the culture the way we see what like the definition of freedom it's slightly different everywhere I think and yeah yeah I think that's ultimately that's... with liberalism like global liberalism movement <laughs> they don't try to open up the the, the spectrum of the, the what's the meaning of freedom yeah to me it almost feels like um and and it's fine like uh, like we grew up on this but i think it's like like the, the the limits of liberalism is that it tries to apply the american lens of freedom and enterprise everywhere and yes. just basically mm-hmm. uh, redefines what freedom means everywhere by just saying hey uh I can say nominally whatever I want, and I can uh, open a, I can open a business if I want to, right? And yeah. and yeah, I I ha- it's it's also not just about freedoms. I think like at, like culturally, like I think the U.S. Um, tries to impose their version of whatever it is, whether it's freedom, whether it's you know like societal structures and ethnic and racial makeup they they try to they think that everywhere in the world works the same way that it works in the united states and it's a very like surface level way of looking at things but america is the land of the free and that everything (laughs) you know covered yeah yeah like i think it's it's true it's like it's it's in it becomes really strange and i think in some way we 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 should pick the parts that are good about it, right? Like for sure, it's super great that I can say whatever I want and, and it's super great that I don't need to fear that like I will have trouble for saying whatever I want. But mm-hmm. but I think uh, that ends up also being, it kind of works in a certain sense to give you like a false sense of control when actually like, what does it matter if you can say whatever you want? If for example, you still do not retain any particular control over like, like actual aspects of your life, right? Like your own body. Say, yeah, yeah, your own body, or or even uh, if you can say whatever you want, but in the end, you still don't have much control over government policy because actually, no place has like a direct direct democracy that mm-hmm. that actually like it doesn't it doesn't mean anything, right? I can say, hey, I I nominally like whoever president is uh, right now in in the U.S. or whatever, but uh, but ultimately, whatever policies they decide is actually not in your hands, right? So, so in this sense, it's it's hard to just say, hey, this is the limit of freedom. I think it's more for us as people that have traveled to other places to be able to to see how freedom is perceived in different places and be able to pick, hey, this part works for us and how do we actually then adapt it to other places instead of saying, hey, uh, we just all need to look like them, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, I think I think people in certain places feel like the basic human right is being entitled to healthcare and education, and then there are people who feel like the basic human right is being entitled to say whatever the fuck you want. Um, I was I was also curious, Fred. It's it, it's very interesting that so the book itself. Uh, the English book that they're teaching to teach English is not banned, but instead they glue the pages together. I would imagine like if they're, if they disagree with it, they would just like cut the book entirely from the curriculum instead of gluing the pages together. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, a Vietnam is a very practical culture. They, they, I would never see them completely outright ban something unless it was like, like fully like for them is like, 
like that's my point and that's i think that's like the interesting thing about like vietnam's uh collectivist system it's like it seems more nominally free than the other ones mostly because they don't exert this like strong censorship on things it's just like mm -hmm. just the right amount you know what i mean it's like for sure we will talk to you about the american war and all mm -hmm. the and all the other events but hey maybe we just don't mention about the fact that like a lot of people didn't like it and they left right and then they just uh, put it together right or i mean if you go to the to the Vietnam War Museum here, things like this, like you will for sure get the the Vietnamese perspective and all this stuff. But yeah, for sure, this like like there's never a lot of mention about the about like the internment camps after the war, like the reeducation uh, period and all this stuff. Um, but they will talk about everything else uh, rather candidly. So it feels like a really strange type of censorship where it's more like we'll tell you everything, but. Uh, not really everything right so it feels kind of strange do you ever feel like you have trouble going deeper into conversations with the local vietnamese people because people are not used to going deeper into things and talking about these other parts of what happened um i will say it's complicated it really depends on who you ask i i've met vietnamese people that are very politically engaged and uh, and I will have like very specific ideas about how things are. Uh, you also oddly enough find them in every spectrum. Like I've met Vietnamese people that are very much like, hey, uh, one party communist state, it's the best. And we're, we're going to like outwork all of you. And like you will see like in 20 years, we will be like a, uh, basically a, like a, a world power or whatever. So I found people that, that, that can talk to you in the sense. I've also found people that have mostly the ones that were educated in the West because some Vietnamese people do study abroad. They will usually kind of have the opposite saying actually, oh yeah, you know what? Like we should just push for uh, for like uh, more market reforms and uh, and that's it. And, and then, then the current system sucks. And then yeah, for sure you will also find the people that are like not very engaged and they will just not necessarily know too much about their history and, and they will not be able to discuss uh, things very deeply. I will find for the most part, the more comfortable Vietnamese people become with you, the more that you will end up in one or the other part of the spectrum. I think Vietnamese people do have uh, a much more deep and material understanding of, of, of their current condition and of their own history. It's just that they're not encouraged to discuss it very openly, even within their own household. So it's something that you kind of have to slowly talk about with them. But I will not, I don't think I subscribe to this narrative that kind of puts, I think in general, they put it everywhere in Asia, right? Like, I don't know if you get the same in Indonesia, but like, they think that like, um, Asian people are like this perpetual uh, innocent children that are really like blocked from like the rest of the world and they do not, uh, they do not consider things uh, very strongly. But I think it's more about the fact that like they they will not necessarily be encouraged to speak about it very openly. But when you actually talk to them, you realize that as everyone in the world, like I have the belief that people are not dumb and that like if you really talk to people, they they most of the time have a grasp of what's actually going on. Right. Like even if uh, even if on the surface level, they, they may seem not very engaged, they they understand their they understand their, their situation. And I think especially here, because even if they don't talk about it, I think the war ended in 76, 78. Don't, don't, I, I, I will probably get my, my um, dates wrong. Pretty much everyone that you meet at least will have parents that lived through the mm -hmm. uh, rebuilding period in the beginning. And you will find like most 90s kids 
lived like right through the opening, right? So they will a probably talk to they will have talked to people that lived uh, both sides, and and they will actually have seen like these changes happening. So even if technically like a lot of the stuff may be blocked in the history books, it's not like they didn't actually get to see it or know people that got to see it, right? Mm -hmm. That I think that's why like in the end like it's. It's hard to say that it that the that the censorship fully works. I think it's mostly something that will work on the outside, and that's why for us, when we're foreigners and we do not speak to to Vietnamese people as deeply, we will kind of get this feeling that actually these conversations are not happening. But we just maybe need to realize that it's just that those conversations are not happening with us, if that makes sense. So. I mentioned to you that before spending time in Oaxaca, I had been spending uh, time in areas that was Aztec and Mayan. And um, it was in Oaxaca that I spent time in an area that was Zapotec, and then after that, um, in an area that was Huasteca. And in these areas that was not Aztec and Mayan, particularly was not Aztec, people were saying that, oh yeah, like back in the day, Aztec was such a... In, they, they would actually say it, it was such an evil empire to the smaller indigenous communities like the Zapotec. Um, the Aztecs would go to these communities and force them to give them, you know, like um, like salt and tribute. humans tributes mm -hmm. like salt and minerals and gems and women to be raped by the Aztecs, and the Mayans were were fighting with other Mayans. So um, I've been thinking about that a lot, and I think before I came to Mexico, I was in the United States, and in the U.S., people. Um, just group all of the indigenous peoples together and kind of uh, like lump them into one whole thing. And that's kind of the same thing that the Dutch did in Indonesia, where they kind of just lumped all of the indigenous together. And after learning more about how much power the Aztec and Mayan empire had, I started thinking like, if the Spaniards left and didn't settled in Latin America, would like would would the ethnic makeup kind of be in places like Asia where the colonizers left and went back to Europe and didn't actually settle and mix with the local people? And I've been thinking about that a lot. And um, um is your question okay? So, for me to understand your question, is your question related about the? Is it related about the ethnic uh, makeup of people within Southeast Asia versus the, the way that ethnicities uh, function within Mexico? Or are you asking me if I think if they didn't come to colonize us, if all of a sudden we would just have Aztec um, people living in in Mexico at this point? I guess my, I, I just want to understand. My my question is like if if the Spaniards didn't didn't settled down and they left and went back to Europe the would the ethnic makeup be dominated by the Aztec and Mayan empire that would be horrible to the smaller indigenous cultures ah i get your point okay yeah i, I think i think you're completely correct i think they would still be horrible to their other cultures like i think imperialism works the same way yeah. in uh, in in every in every way where it's where it exists i think 
it's also very easy for us to to vilify saying like oh yeah just uh, the the white people and i think that that that's also like an issue that i have with this uh, type of uh um liberalism is like they believe that like all the evils in the world can only be ever uh realized and uh and perpetrated by uh by white people so it's like oh yeah only the white people uh do the horrible things and they're they're the only ones that ethnically cleanse or they're the only ones that do like uh the raping and the colonialism and the violence but uh but i think it's uh it's of course not that way right like they they're just the ones that benefit the most at this current state but uh, but yeah. every point in history, you have had like a stronger warlike. It's the easiest narrative to stick, I think. Yeah, yeah, but like I think legitimately, it's like we need to understand that the way that cultures develop materially is that like as a as a group becomes bigger and they require more resources. Unfortunately, especially before where like communication was even harder to come by, it just it just was easier for for bigger groups to take stuff that they just needed from other people right so yeah. of course if it wasn't the spanish of course we would still have like a uh, uh, colonialist stuff uh, within um, within mexico for sure I, I have no doubt because even you see it uh, with like uh, han chinese in china it's the same they kind of uh, nominally oppress the the other smaller ethnic groups i think even Viet in vietnam like vietnam has this stronger sense of like uh, having like just like uh, the kin ethnic group, ethnic group which is the regular vietnamese but uh but they also in some way oppress like the hmong and uh, red zhao uh, and thai uh, minorities in the north uh, to some lesser or or bigger degrees that really, really will depend on the on the time period so yeah i think uh, it's important for us especially if we ever want to have a, a world that is uh, more fair to understand that the chain of oppression is not it's colorblind right in some way like it's more about it's more about the way that we relate to each other and the way that uh, that resources get procured not to get bogged down and saying, oh yeah, actually if the Aztecs had a... And whoever ha whoever is in, in, in the position of power has that. Um, yeah, it, it was very eye-opening because I... Maybe us as a human, we still don't know how to handle power. I think that's the problem, maybe. Yeah, I think like the, the way is like power needs to be in some way distributed, right? Like I think mm -hmm. the, the moment we try, we the moment we really centralize it and make it so that it's very hard for people to access it, uh, the more likely that you'll end up having uh, certain abuses, right? So I yeah. think ultimately, if anything, we need to be able to find empathy uh, for each other and understanding between ourselves because, yeah, I think uh, otherwise you just end up with like a reductive thinking that ends up like dehumanizing other people and then, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then you will yeah. just be colonizing them. <laughs> One of the most eye-opening thing is um, I was spending time in Isamal and it had one of like the biggest or the second oldest church um, in all of Mexico. And it was built by the stones from the Mayan pyramids. And when I was there, I was like really mad. And I was like, oh my God, how come like the people never did anything and they're just okay with the stones from the Mayan pyramids being stolen to build a church? This is like literally, you know, the, the physical metaphor of colonization. And then they showed me the statue of the Papal um, that came um, to, to like, uh, torture the Mayans um, to convert them to Catholicism and everything. And I was like, oh my God, how come they didn't 
you know, take this down, blah, blah, blah. And then um, it was actually a bunch of like the local, like the end, the owners and the driver who were telling me like, number one, a lot of these, a lot of these conversations that we're having about taking down statues, it's like intellectual people who um, maybe feel good about decolonization, but it doesn't change our lives because we continue to live in poverty. And um, you can take down the statue if you want, but it doesn't make a difference in our lives. And the other really important thing they were saying is that um, the thing is, before the Spaniards came, the Mayans were killing each other. Like Mayans were killing Mayans the way Mexicans are killing Mexicans right now. And that really opened my mind. And and they, they were also like indigenous Mexicans. And they were saying that... Um, uh, a lot of history is like simplified by saying like um, the Spanish people are evil, but it's also like a lot of the indigenous people who teamed up with the Spaniards to to get revenge on the empires that were hurting them. Um, so it's not as simple as like, oh, they came and then they like took everything. But yeah, I had a lot of a lot of very like, meaningful insightful experiences that I'm I'm glad I did because I had I felt like I had been suffocated in the United States <laughs> no I think that's a good way of traveling you know because sometimes people just go some somewhere and then just you know absorb the beauty or the place or whatever without building a connection or like even try to know the people you know I mean yeah, I think like the fact that you talk to people and hear their perspective is already quite valuable. Yeah. I think um, I think we should all do more of that. Um, I will say though, like, like I I still believe that like forced Christianization is mostly a net negative over uh, mm -hmm. over overall within Mexican culture. Not because our previous religions were good, uh, but mainly because also like not only do they get do they get like the the exploitation. Uh, by a stronger culture but now actually all that wealth and materials were actually being siphoned mm -hmm. back to europe i think like yeah. if you really think about it like it's important like even if we do realize that like uh, all colonized all imperialism is exploitative and bad we do have to understand that like at least if the if the resources stay within that place it means that like as soon as there's like some sort of upheaval or change the resources are available right and i think the problem also in latin america that we ended up with is that a lot of the a lot of the way that the extractive uh, system worked is that like yeah once these countries liberate themselves actually they don't have anything uh, anything to to really take over and 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 really start from right so it is important to to note that uh, that that not only not only like not all imperialisms are the same and like it's i think it's easy to say oh yeah like uh the 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 mayans uh, were killing between each other and like uh we vilify the spaniards and to some degree it's true but uh but it's also important to to take note of the of the real material effects that uh forced the mm -hmm. uh, conversion had uh on the region yeah i agree with you but i think the beauty of religion for me is like when you read like a like a war story or whatever like similar situation religion is a kind of good in a way that it brings them hope in a way that they pray to this person it's not a 
for me, reading it, it's not about the God. It's about the something that they put their hope into that filled up their yeah yeah it's a it's a um, passion for freedom and yeah it's a yeah it's a i wouldn't say how would you say this term like in the end it's a it's about the big ideas behind it and not yeah. necessarily about the about the, the story but I mean, yeah. but we could argue that probably their own stories and their own their, their own religions also had their own hopes and ideas and uh and um because i think in the end the idea of like uh like hope and a better world is is baked into pretty much every religion, right? And I think ultimately, one of the problems with Catholicism, in my perspective, is that it always offers you the fact that even if it's bad here, it's okay that it's bad here because actually, when you die up there, it's gonna be cool. So don't worry about now. Don't you don't even need to do anything, right? Uh, as long as you behave correctly, because when you die, it's gonna be okay. And and I go like. I mean, yeah, in some way it gives people some hope of like, yeah, maybe something can get better. But but I think it does breed this idea. Um, it really brings this, breeds this passivity uh, within itself that I think it's not necessarily the most positive in every, in every, in every aspect. I, but I agree. I do think that, that the, um, that the idea of like fraternity and bro and I will say brotherhood, but I, I include everyone and not just men, but it's just, I guess it's the word, like the fraternity of all mankind together and, and, and helping your neighbors and all this stuff is a really cool, uh, really cool part of Christianism. And I think ultimately it may also be why uh, Mexicans are so welcome to each other because actually it's also in the mm. teachings that they were probably passed down to. Mm. But yeah, we just shouldn't be blinded by saying, oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, weird. So, sometimes I find it like it's kind of, I wouldn't say weird, but like fascinating that um, in in certain places, some of them still speak in the Mayan language or er, in their indigenous language, but they're super Catholic. So it's like <laughs> linguistically, <laughs> they still keep that. But like religiously, they... they I think that's the, the reasons why... It's very successful. Even here in Indonesia, if you go to certain areas, Eastern in Indonesia, Medan, or yeah, I guess they syncretism. They infiltrate yes the culture, and then they mix, and then even they have their own Bible in their own ethnic languages. You know. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to say was that when I was like, "Oh my God, how come you guys are not like mad at Spain?" They were like, "Well, where do you think the Mayan kings ended up living? The Mayan kings." ended up living in Spain. So they were it was it was such an eye-opening conversation and that reminded me of of in Indonesia in in Java there's the the kingdom and the kraton how do you say the kraton and there are a lot of the people from the royal family I guess um, or from the royal circle that end up living in western Europe as well and um yeah I think uh, I don't know um not that I don't know. I, um, <laughs> what I'm saying is, things are complex and it's never black and white. Yeah, yeah. I think like because when people need hope and like you provide them a void to fill that hope into, it's like it's kind of how ideology functions, right? Yeah. It's like a, it's an empty vessel where you can pour your stuff into. And I think if uh, if these people need the hope right now, and you already raised their previous uh, b uh, vessel for hope, they will pour it into the only existing one, right? So. If you dismantle the local religion and you only give people this one, of course, that's what that's the one they will hold on to. And that's the one that will uh, keep them up. 
and yeah, for sure, I think also colonialism always works with like creating certain allegiances between like the current, uh, the previous ruling class and the current one. Uh, in Vietnam, we had uh, the Nguyen dynasty, but uh, he was pretty cozy with the French, and actually after the after the um, the Vietnam uh, independence from the French, he, yeah. he ended up uh, going. Uh, going mm-hmm. back to France and I think uh, his family still lives there and he married like a rich French yeah. woman and, and whatever good for him um, so yeah I think ultimately it's never it's never really monolithic I think it's also important for us to understand this that like uh, like in Latin America or any of these countries also have their own social strata and they also it's it's not like a monolith of people right like they also had their own ruling class they were also doing their own deals and I think ultimately it's important it's important that they told you this, I think, yeah. because it's it's very easy for us, again, to always think that, like, indigenous people are these perpetual children that don't have any agency or or decisions that they, they make for themselves. Uh, and I think that's that's a really sad point of um, yeah. of considering people, like, saying, oh, yeah, they, they did this because either they didn't know any, knew any better, better or because they were completely uh, overtaken, when actually the truth is always uh, that, that, no, actually, like, people... Like either maybe the, the people didn't choose for themselves because they didn't have the capacity for choosing, but their ruling class for sure were clearly making those choices, right? Like it's not it's not like they were completely powerless. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to to realize yeah. this because otherwise we just end up thinking that we know better than yeah. than them. That I think it's really cool as well that like that they were comfortable enough to talk to you in this sense as well, because I've been I've been a tourist in, in, in certain parts of Mexico and generally they like it's it's hard for people to really tell you what they they truly think. At least for me, even as a Mexican, I don't get this. Maybe because they see me as a city guy. Um, so it's super cool that 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 you found people that were able to actually explain to you the the way that they view their their own reality. I think that's super super special. Yeah. Like what you were saying, Fred, that indigenous people have power and agency and everything. I think for the U.S., like this U.S. perspective that has been imposed on the rest of the world is that in the U.S., I think people think of indigeneity in terms of race or in terms of ethnicity. Um, Whereas like in places where the colonizers left, it's like everyone is technically native people to the land, right? Because the the colonizers left. So then indigeneity, like indigenous peoples, is not in terms of like race and ethnicity, but in terms of like what you practice, right? Like, because if you're talking about race and ethnic makeup, it's like there are native people who are protecting the lands and protecting the forests and protecting the rivers. And then there are native people who have positions of power and ruling in the government. Um, yeah, that's, that's the comparison that I was trying to make. Like if the Spaniards d- left, um, it would be the, the Aztecs or the Mayans empires that will have the ruling power and domination. Yeah, Latin America is not monolithic for sure. I think it's uh and yeah, for sure like people um, like people make this uh, social relations uh, everywhere where there's power to be had. Yeah, it's not it's not exclusive to any particular group. I think I, it's super important to understand. And I think a lot of this. people actually know yeah. about this, you know, that history doesn't start with colonization, you know. I think a lot of people are very aware of our human nature. I think it's just because of the the popular media that keep perpetuating this, I don't narrative that makes us think that oh, 
you know, this is what people think. But actually, when you, you know, you go somewhere, you talk to the local people, it's it's not the reality. If you, we're like, we're nice. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's also like it's it's almost also like a way in which power gets perpetuated. Yeah. Like, I think it's like the way that they we are always encouraged to be either separated through like ethnic or racial lines is not really what benefits most of the people. Like, I think if people were able to understand their own particular uh, material circumstances, we would be having much better outcomes uh, when it comes to uh, to liberatory movements. I think it's a, yeah. like if, if we're always concerned of saying, oh yeah, who gets to be native, who doesn't get to be native, who gets to be Spanish, who doesn't get to be white and all this stuff, like we're kind of like creating like this very like weird divisions where actually uh, we should just realize that like at, at the heart of it, we're just people. And ultimately we all have like similar immediate material needs uh, that we need to attend to and that actually the differences between us is not that great and I think uh, and I think that's uh, the the moment we realize it I think that that's when we'll actually be able to um, to try to build a better uh, a better society for all of us like because yeah like division doesn't doesn't help doesn't work for anyone like our only advantage actually is that we are many. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. It's and uh, we should probably be using that. Too, that that this division creates like, yeah. like when I was in Bali like two weeks ago, I went to like this beach. It's it's considered like a mixed beach because in Bali you can find like a beach that you know crowded with Western people and on the beaches that only local people go. And this beach is like... But is it is it enforced in some degree? No, like, no. Places? It's just... Okay, okay, okay. I think it's our nature to go to people that we're familiar with, I think. Okay, okay. So, yeah, but this okay, beach, we're like mixed. And then there's... When I was when I was walking back to the, the parking space, there's this... Uh, people are crowding this thing. And we, I went there with my boyfriend and we, because we were curious what happened there. And it turns out there's a protest. It's a v- vegan protest. They were fighting for the pig's life. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I'm so angry because pigs are part of Balinese cuisine. It's Balinese cultures. And when it's, it's not that I'm hitting white people. It's just that... It just happened that the two of them are like white people and then they're protesting against the Balinese culture. culture. And I was like, if you do this in your own country with the knowledge of your own culture, that's perfectly fine. But if you don't, if you don't understand the culture (laughs) or even taste it, how can you do this to the people? You know, I was so angry. Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, uh, it's not, it's not productive even to like, like how how entitled do you need to be to believe that like yeah. like you can just go to a to, to a place and just tell people ha you have to live this way and like how do you think people yeah. will even react to this it's like me here trying to tell people like the way that they treat animals is maybe could be different or improved and i think for us it's super um super important to understand that the way that you actually get this change is by building connections and being able to speak to people like hey you know maybe it's better to do it in, in a particular way like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think entitled people are always infuriating. I would have been yeah, the same. I would have been like, what, what, what are you doing? And even bro? I'm vegetarian, you know. And I was like, <laughs> what like, what are you doing, like? bro? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> vegan veganism is almost they like just adding to the bad potentially to the bad uh, idea of cult <laughs> vegan people. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's like a <laughs> Wait, but oh. but who are where are the two white girls from? I don't know. Because there were tons of people and I was too angry and I left. Jeez, yeah, no, so. like it, it yeah, it never works this way. Like you cannot like if you scream to people like that you will not get any uh you will not get any um any positive yeah. results. I think it's a it's, it's it's borderline uh even Indonesian is a very Muslim country. I don't think there are Muslim people demonstrating against, you know, stop eating pigs in Bali, don't you think? Oh there there oh not in Bali, but are there they? there were No, like in Bali, no, right? Yeah, not in Bali. I believe like, other there parts, was yes. for a Balinese restaurant, I I believe. But out but not in Bali, right? We still have that respect of like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Yeah, there's crazy. ways to do it as well, I think. It's like you like you shouldn't do it in like from a position of like uh entitlement, right? Like it's it's so unfair to just say, Hi, yeah, you're you're wrong and like you have to do it like me. Like at least yeah. try to make the argument of saying, Hey, uh pigs are sentient creatures and like maybe we should treat them better and maybe this should be better for them because actually it's, it's, it's really cruel or whatever. And then for sure, from there, we can actually start having a different conversation about whether it's okay to eat them or not, right? But, but if you just already call, outright call people pig murderers, like, like no one will listen to you. Like it's not, it's not going to have You're so not gonna even have a conversation, yeah. And like fundamentally, yeah. it's also so, it's so conceited because it's like you, you feel better that you made like your protest and like you did your, your, your part. But in the end, the pigs are still getting slaughtered, right? Like tomorrow, like they're still eating pigs in 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 Bali. So, so you like it's it's messed up because like it it gives okay. you the feeling that you did your part when actually you didn't do anything. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I think that's that's I realize that's a big part of like a lot of people who who do these things like whether it's taking down statues or veganism <laughs> i like if you're really truly vegan it's fine like but chill. like a lot of people a lot of people do things to make themselves pe- feel better not for the actual cause they i think the 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 term is like social justice or whatever yeah like what are you um, achieving <laughs> yeah yeah, it's just for the for your own ego to make yourself feel better. And um, I actually think a lot of... <laughs> no, I'm just gossiping right now. <laughs> yeah, it's not... A lot of what? Yeah, a lot of Gossiping what? what? <laughs> Why are you stopping? <laughs> no, I, I think a lot of like arts and culture, um, a lot of like arts stuff from the U- United States suddenly have the social justice turn and a lot of it is just like making them feel better about themselves yeah there's no there's no material uh there's no material effect right like yeah for sure it's mostly just like saying oh yeah i, I did my part but uh yeah but actually yeah and that's why i'm sick and tired and i'm so glad i'm out of the united states yeah it's like <laughs> like we need to understand that change takes time, but I think it also takes a lot of commitment to like slowly, slowly push that agenda, right? Like it's not, yeah. it's not like a movie. And I think maybe it's also the way that we've been bred to believe that like movie narratives work. Like, like there's a big gesture and then the world changes. Maybe it's screw you, Joseph Campbell. Like was Campbell? Yeah, like the hero's journey guy that goes like, <laughs> oh yeah, like this will happen, and then you do like a, you change the world, and then like a, there's like a big gesture, and then the world is different. It's like. Well, actually, no, right? Like it's the world changes very slowly, and it and and it, it can only change when enough mass of people actually uh, want that change to happen. So, it's more like a slow preach, 
that kind of reminds me i'm sorry i'm sorry if this reminds me of this um <laughs> but what you said kind of reminds me of like was it fidel castro that said um like people were were saying like oh like how is it that a president can be in power for like decades and he was like well you're not going to make a change within four years so like if u.s presidents keep changing every four years there's no change that's actually going to happen because you can never actually enact a change within four years and um I I was just reminded of <laughs> that somehow and I it's not that I agree with that or disagree with that I just think that there are other ways of looking at um oh yeah for sure like actually the, the thing in the US is that actually you 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 need to come to realize that that presidents don't hold that much power within the the, the American structure right like it's a puppet show yeah like and even if you wanted to concede that they they do certain things is like I think within their within their country, they already accepted that like the dominant, uh, dominant change and, and ideas will come from like private enterprise. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's where you actually get to see the changes, right? Like that's, that's where you get like your, uh, Zuckerbergs that have been, uh, like ruling Facebook for the past, uh, at least, uh, mm -hmm. more than 10 years now, right? Like how old is Facebook? Like 15 years? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and truly those are the ones that actually push like the American, uh, culture, and and reality in particular ways right so mm -hmm. so yeah it's just it's, it's just kind of silly to believe that uh that that, that the decisions are being taken where they're not being actually taken yeah uh, yeah changes take time changes take time and we like i think our job is to like have these discussions with people so that that we can eventually push to make gradual better choices but i think if you try to really force people's hands like people will not like it right yeah. yeah. I mean, speaking of food, what is your favorite Vietnamese food so far? Oh, okay. So uh, I will say the best Vietnamese dish is bún cha. Uh, I think bún mostly cha. most every foreigner will tell you this. It's basically what? like this, like uh, thin noodles with like um, pork meatballs and like uh, bacon, and then like it has like this sauce based around the uh, vinegar and uh, green papaya, like pickled papaya. Uh, and it's super delicious, kind of like this really sweet, sour, uh, savory type of dish. And then you will add like herbs on top. So some people will add like this fish leaf. Uh, I don't put that one, but you can add it. Or they will add like mint or they will add uh, basil or this stuff. I'm, I mostly just had a whole bunch of basil on top. And it's beautiful. It's like eating savory soap. It's great. But generally, I think all Vietnamese food is delicious. And I think in general, if you're a foodie, uh, I think it's a good country to live in as well because... Uh, not only do you have really good uh, Vietnamese food, because the food here is delicious, but since there's so much foreign people here, you can pretty much find every type of food. Like you can find pizza, you can find pasta, you can find French food, you can find uh, Moroccan food, like mm -hmm. you can find African food. And, and most of it will actually be really good. Mm -hmm. The only one that you will not find that is good is Mexican food. Mexican food here is mostly really <laughs> bad. Um, I think here is when you can actually take to like colonization as an example, because to me it's like, um, and I think like we, we made a mistake in Mexico to like not export our culture first. Uh, I think the problem is like, like basically since the US got to export Mexican food first, mm. like the way that people and, will and conceive Mexican food across the world is, is actually like the, Mex the, the American version of Mexican food. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I really think so. I have to say, yeah. like, there's a there's a food in Mexico that is so similar to an Indonesian food, which is elotes. 
Esquites. What is it? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Dapsao here as well. Yeah. Oh, you guys have that in Vietnam too? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's called Dapsao. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, it's a uh, Ruth. It's it's corn, um, but in a in a cup, and then you put like um cheese and like uh some spicy oh, sauce. God. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I first found out about esquites, I was like, oh my god! I used to eat this as a kid because like you know my mom would go shopping and then I would just like go somewhere else and then sometimes I go out in the parking lot and they would sell that in a did parking they, lot did they put condensed milk also on it um i haven't seen people no actually no. yes they, they some people yeah, do make sweet babsao and they put condensed milk on it for like sure cheese yes. condensed milk and corn ah not cheese not cheese when you do it with condensed milk for sure because mm. <laughs> indonesian <laughs> cheese is basically they're they're not cheese they're more like how do you explain indonesian cheese it's like the powdered cheese no, no, it's, it's like the grated, cheese. grated cheddar cheese. Yeah, but the ah, cheese is okay. not like cheese at all. Huh? Yeah, it seems like it's like you know, like maybe like you craft? have it in Indonesia as well. Like, yeah, like the 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 milk tea places that have cheese on the on on top, like the cheese foam that doesn't really taste like cheese, but they call it cheese. Yeah, I get I get what you mean. Yeah, mm. yeah. The conception of cheese in this part of the world is kind of strange. I think. Yeah. Uh, French people must get uh, completely appalled when they arrive. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I have an interesting story, which might mm. not be related at all <laughs> to this. But so I told you like the, the Eastern Indonesian people who come here as missionaries and then they settle down here and they stay here for like 20, 30, 40 years, right? And so, like, from them, I got to know, like, other missionaries um, from other countries. And, like, all of them are from, like, not the U.S. or Western Europe. Like, even from Indonesia, oh, like, yeah. like, Eastern Indonesia is, like, the, the, the more marginalized communities, right? Um, yeah. And the, the other people that I met through, through the um, community are from, like, parts of like West Central Africa or like South Asia. And um, I found out that it's it's like a global thing, right? Where like Rome, the Vatican sends people all over the world and stuff. So one of them told us, uh, my friend and I, that Indonesia doesn't accept Catholic missionaries. Like like Indonesia is one of the countries that like don't accept um, no people to come to live as missionaries. Like so, these people like they can go to Indonesia as a tourist if they want to, but if they were to like live there as a pastor, they're not allowed to. Like the gov the Indonesian government doesn't allow them that hmm. permission, which is which is different, right? Um, because they come from Flores or Timor to Mexico and other parts of Latin America on this visa, um, the, like a, I don't know what you call it, like a missionary visa, like a, mm -hmm. like, like a goodwill visa, I guess. I don't know what the visa is, but, um, but yeah, um, I was like, oh, and the other country is China and China makes sense because China is like yeah. communist, like nominally communist and therefore atheist, right? Like, like religion is not, is, is not supposed to be a thing. 
And I'm guessing like Indonesia because it's majority Muslim. Um, but why? I mean, if you have the answer or if you can ask the Indonesian government why, you can tell me the answer. <laughs> and like because I spend so much time uh, at the church and like I'm always there during mass and they have like, mm. I don't know, like four, five, six mass a day. Um mm. I feel like by the end of this project I am gonna I'm gonna memorize the hymns and the liturgy and everything. <laughs> they 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 are beautiful hymns though. It's and it it's you know? it's like catchy or I don't know how to say like maybe catchy is not the right word but it's like it sticks in your mind, right? <laughs> it has this magic not magical but I think I it, it is for me magical because I love the sign of organs and organs have this like very, you know, like massive, deep sound mm-hmm. that can like almost shakes your, yeah. you know, like, I don't know, spirit, heart, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I still love some of the hymns from the church. I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm learning a lot. I think like, um, I think a lot of these millennial or like, um, like it's the these new- millennials <laughs> we're millennials too <laughs> <laughs> i guess what i'm saying it's like there, a lot of like this I, I don't even know what to call it but like this like contemporary culture this new practice of like shitting on religion especially mm. in like mm. north america or western europe where they're like oh if you believe in god it's because you're you're not smart enough to like blah 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 um, and they try to say like, oh, we want to like decolonize, decolonize um, because religion is like colonization, things like that. And Yeah, but um, then slowly their life become vapid and they chase something else like yeah, yoga, which yeah. is like, <laughs> duh. You know? Yes, but also like from, from talking to these Eastern Indonesian people um, and, and even like, like even even before I met these Eastern Indonesian people, you see like, um, for instance, the Indonesians in the U S who they, they came to the U S for asylum and refugee during a time of crisis. Right. And the way they like hold on and find their, their will for survival is through the community they find at church. Right. And like these churches become like a safe place for and and like a resource center even for them um and like a lot of immigrant families too like latino families in the states um like find their community at church and and yeah i think like i guess what i'm saying is this like whole thing about like oh like we should like abolish religion because it's it's like decolonization like sometimes you're 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 actually like hurting certain communities that are already marginalized and they find their will to live and they find their community from church or religion. And it's funny that we're talking about this and like, we're both two people that like grew up in church and don't go to church anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause like I used to, I told you, right. I used to, you know, what do you call that in, in English? The kids that, you know, help the pastor to like I know you you call it altar boy but I don't know for girls what you call him I didn't know wait I you I think you might have told me I just forgot that you were like an altar girl do you call it an altar girl yeah when since I was like 
ten or something. So, do you still remember the choreography or the rituals? What do you call it? No, I don't remember all of those because, well, me and my 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 childhood best friends, we just love doing this because one, you could have the bread for free <laughs> because you can just go to the room and like open the Tupperware or what a compartment or like the box filled with those bread mm-hmm. and then you could just eat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we also like to hang out at like. At the church, because our old church has like a tiny library, and we used to hang out there and play. Uh, what do you call jelangkung in English? Like okja board. Oh, okja! Yeah, that's so yeah. funny that you played okja in church. <laughs> because it's the most safe place to play it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Yeah, I I wouldn't know. Like that's what I realized. Like, um, so, I mean, I grew up in a in a Christian Protestant church, um, and so we don't have like the those kinds of like when you stand, when you sit, when you kneel, mm-hmm. when you stand, when you kneel. Um, like in a Protestant church, you kind of just like do whatever you want. <laughs> um, and I think with me, like learning about because of this project. Because we're filming and I see the the what do you even call it? You know, do you call it a choreo? I don't. I don't. Do you call it a choreography? How do you say it? Or what? Like a dance move? No, like when you stand, when you kneel, when you sit, when you kneel, when you stand. Oh. What do you call that? The steps, like all of these steps, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm like yeah, choreograph. Also, yeah. Okay. I'm like, oh Makes wow, sense. this is this is like actually kind of beautiful like well I because I I didn't I didn't experience that and then also like people here are really uh they're uh shocked um mm. that you know you know like my great grandfather was catholic and then my grandfather was buddhist and then my mom is protestant um they're shocked that like that y- you can change in Indonesia and then they're also mm-hmm. shocked that in Indonesia like you have to have a religion like you and you have to declare it on your ID card and I think mm-hmm. like most people in the world that I've talked to all over they're always shocked like they're surprised yeah that in Indonesia you you need to declare a religion and have it on your ID card yeah you know the most funny things that do you know, like the the Catholic Church, we we all obeyed the what do you call it? The, the Vatican, mm-hmm. the the what do you call that oh. in in English? The Pope, because he's pious, right? Me and my best friend we always make fun of this, because like in Indonesian translation, that pious guy literally whale, like whales, like who lives under the water, the sea. How do you say it in Indonesian? Paus. <laughs> I like pause the Pope and then pause Wales. And we were like, what's the history of this? Who even came up with this? Yeah, who came up with that? I think it's because of the pious thing. And then we just like, oh yeah, pious, pious, pause. And then, you know. Huh. But yeah. Interesting. I mean, Wales are like a, like a holy mammal stem. Kind of, Yeah. Not kind of, yeah, yeah, I think so. They are like, yeah, they, they are. are like elephant, like, yeah. Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, thanks for listening. Now you know more about us and our background.
and Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, also check out our new articles by his a Palembang-born writer who has spent some time in Malaysia and has been publishing poetry and short stories in um, themes of dislocation, estrangement, hopelessness, and many yes. more. So check it out. And if you have an article or an essay or a piece that you would like to submit, click the link on our website. <laughs> click the link down below. No? Can we attach the link? Yes. Um, here. Or you can immediately email us sugarnutmegpodcast at gmail.com. It's literally like two people they are not good with technology trying to compete with NZ. <laughs> Yo, we're good at other things. 